let me just say, any of you that are asking these questions, and I miss it entirely, at 8 o'clock, come on up. We'll keep talking. Um, it is a, ver a version of dialogue here, but I know that there are certain limitations in how the kinds of questions I can answer. Um, continuing, a couple of really good ones. Um, but if there is senseless suffering that wasn't meant to be, and God is sovereign, why or how uh, does it happen? Um, if he's God after all, um, why does he allow that? I don't mean to be a pat answer, but as a pastor, for me to walk into any number of situations and where there is suffering that is all of a sudden and a shock and nobody saw it come in and it's just absolutely egregious. And um, if, if my intention is to walk in there both on day one or day 100 and say, well, now here's the reason why it happened. That is information to which I am not privy. And in the moment, even for me to tell someone, well, this is the reason why. Does that help? It wouldn't help me. The question about if God is sovereign over all things, why does he permit it? Again, I'm falling back to what, what Keller says there. To, to pin an answer to that, um, uh, that even is logical. Who cares if it's logical? Does it help? No. I just know the one reason it's, I know one reason it's not. There is senseless suffering in this world for reasons I cannot explain. But I know one reason that's not true. And that's because of what Jesus has done to enter into my suffering willingly so that my suffering necessarily, wouldn't necessarily disappear, but that I might face it with a different heart. So, um, natural disasters. Um, what happened in Colorado yesterday? What happened in the Shabbat in San Diego two weeks ago? What happened at UNC Charlotte last week? To hear of the bravery of that young man who subdues the attacker and dies trying. He was a graduate of Robertson, I believe. Why did that happen? I have no idea. Do I believe God could enter into that and allow them to see it with a different heart than if they repudiated any belief in that? Yes. I can't explain it but I do believe we can be met in it. And being met in it is what we most need because there's no good answer, even if there were one, for senseless tragedy. And this um, kind of goes to other causes. Does evil or Satan create unnecessary suffering? Is there the evil or um, does Satan cause any of that? A couple questions along those lines. That have come in. If you've never read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I heartily recommend it. David Foster Wallace is an author I've, I've mentioned a lot of times um, in sermons around here, and, and he was not a believer in God, but his favorite book was the Screwtape Letters. And if you don't know about that book, it is C.S. Lewis's um, imaginary attempt to think about what would two demonic uh, representatives, two demonic ambassadors, if they wrote letters to each other about how to thwart the intentions of God, what would they say to one another? And in the preface to that book, uh, he says, um, the two greatest dangers of anybody who believes in God is to think that there is no demonic forces out there or to think that there is one under every rock. Um, either is an error. 
and I'm not sure who it was that first said it that uh, the best trick the devil ever the, the best trick the devil ever pulled was to make people think that he didn't exist. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the in the book of Ephesians, says our 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 war is not against flesh and blood. That uh, that which we cannot see, and that which has great adversarial intention against the intentions of God, exists and exerts power. And whereas uh, one may become perhaps too uh, interested in, in forces of that nature, um, one may also uh, write it off entirely and not take into account uh, the ways in which those forces are at work. So um, Jesus makes it pretty clear that uh, the one who is known as the enemy, the adversary, is the one who's out to steal, kill, and destroy. That doesn't sound like a very passive motion or a passive mandate for for one so titled. Therefore, as a Christian believer, I would say it's fully realizable, it's fully rational uh, to argue uh, that there are forces that perpetrate uh, that which is contrary to God's designs, um, but who have a shelf life and an expiration date. Um, it says, Keller talks about secular people being pretty much atheists. Um, most non-Christians I know have their own version of a combination of other religions. How do you speak to suffering to people? Uh, how do you speak to suffering people to show Christianity is better than their means of coping and beliefs? How do you show Christ is a better way? Sociologists would say that our era, um, for all of the, the, the conversation about uh, people evacuating churches, uh, the number of people who claim a spirituality but are not participatory in any organized religion is as high, if not higher, than any other day, which is rather baffling um, to those who come from a, a secular sociological point of view because, as you heard Keller say last week, the, 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 the premise that most sociologists operate on um, most modern theorists is that the more you add science into the mix, the more we understand the universe, well, then that will naturally lead people to, um, to lift out anything of a transcendent or a spiritual nature from their worldview, and that's how we get a more secular uh, world. And yet, um, the amount of people who ascribe some sort of um, appreciation, belief, or faithfulness towards that which is transcendent towards that which is more of an agnostic belief in, in spiritual is as high, if not higher, than any other day. So it's, again, it's, it's sort of a conundrum to most people that assumed another, you know, a, a higher trajectory towards having no religious faith. And so uh, in, in that environment in where uh, people don't flock to maybe more traditional forms of religious faith like Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, uh, they kind of, they, here's the word, bricolage. It's a, I think it's a form of art, isn't it, Molly, bricolage? It's like bringing together lots of disparate um, um, media and, and uh, force, uh, yeah, media and texts and textures and things like that into a single picture. And so people these days just start importing from all sorts of different traditions to kind of create this, uh, I don't know, little soup of uh, spirituality. And uh, it works for them. And um, it, it, helps, it helps them to give meaning to the things that they don't have quite answers for, um, but at the same time doesn't really require much from them. Um, and rarely will it ever tell them things that they don't want to hear. 
Um, and it's fashionable, and it makes sense, because the, uh, to borrow a line from Charles Taylor, uh, he says, everybody in this world experiences this thing called cross pressures. If you're a religious believer, there are moments, you go through your day, something happens to you, you drive down the street, you're in an airport, you're watching a movie, and you think, man, that does not fit in my worldview about a God. In fact, that feels like a Jenga piece just got pulled out and everything falls. And that's true for religious believers. That's also true for those who have no religious faith. That they come into moments, they see a film, they listen to an opera, they have a moment with death, and suddenly they think, this cannot be all there is. I have had an experience, like even, even Sam Harris and Barbara Ehrenreich, they will speak of meditative experiences that suggest to them something greater than that which they can see, even though they are avowed secularists. The original question was, I'm sorry, <laughs> how does Christianity measure up to those who pull from those various traditions? It's, it's not an attempt on my part as a Christian to come to those people who argue in that way to say, like, to press you on it. My, 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 my question would be to kind of press them on it. Like, why do you hold to that and hold to this? Why have you, why have you selected this but deselected that? And, and why do you feel as if you're able to arbitrate on a given religious tradition and say that this works and this doesn't? And, and therefore, it becomes sort of a, um, kind of, can be kind of a self-serving way of operating, but with an understandable intention. And that is to kind of retain meaning in the, in, the for, in the face of abject suffering. Like, like Keller kind of rattles off there at the end, Jesus represents a unique response to the place of suffering in that although there are other pagan traditions in which there are dying gods and rising gods, none of them are out in public, humiliated, full of angst and anguish, anguish as he was, and for a purpose. And so I... It, it, is it a logical response to that or is it more of a I'm more compelled by that story because that story I think has explanatory power for my understanding of suffering but also for my hope that that suffering will one day come to an end that if he was the one who closed his eyes in death and then opened them up on the other side of death then that means that death does not have the last word and so it you know it would kind of depend on what other traditions is somebody borrowing from how does that tradition measure up to the story of one who says, my love is real and everlasting and it's even stronger than death? Okay, let me stop there. If you ask that question, come up to me later and help me make sure I was even close. Does suffering drive us to a dependency on God? It can. There's a certain choice in the matter. The most poignant um, experience of suffering that my family ever experienced was when we lost a daughter. She was five days old. She died in my arms. We were singing Come Thou Fount to her when she died. And it was right before Christmas. And everybody looked at us and said, I'm so sorry this happened to you at Christmas. And we said, no, this actually is the clearest Christmas we've ever had. Because in a moment like that, the tinsel didn't matter. And the point of singing joy to the world did because of what we had lost was real. We wept and we were angry about it at moments and had to kind of wrestle with that anger. But perhaps like no other moment were we faced with a certain measure of peace and thanksgiving and appreciation for um, what we had 
and we're humbled by it. So I would say that it can, and I don't pat us on the back for the way in which we responded in that way. I think there are all sorts of suffering. There are families in this room and in this church who have lost people that they've known not for five days but for decades. And surely those are moments in which there is opportunity to be driven more into your meaning, but there is also the, the challenge that can actually make you harder or more bitter. And so um, the invitation to us all in moments of suffering, if we come from a Christian point of view, is to take our tears to God, to express our anguish without a shame to God, and to grieve, as Paul says, as those who still have hope. Because it can be tempered by that, and, um, and therefore driven more into our belief that there is a reason um, for hope. There are a couple that have come in about sanctification and God's purpose. Um, does this, the way this one is worded, does the sanctification of God's purpose disregard our personal choice? So how does sanctification and personal choice um, enter into purpose? Uh, First of all, for those of you in the room that said, sanctum what? Um, Sanctimonious? Oh, yeah, you guys are excellent at that. Um, Sanctification is is just a biblical term for the idea of us um, becoming more and more resembling the heart of God by the inner renewal of our innermost being which is a work of God um, affected, by, uh, affected upon us uh, by virtue of the influence of God's Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and, and that is a work of God, but it is one in which we cooperate, we participate. We, 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 we hear of the truth that has come to us in Jesus. We, we believe in that. And um, when faced with any number of moments that were uh, challenged by temptation, uh, we remember um, what God has done for us in Jesus and um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we move in a direction that, that forces us to believe like we haven't perhaps had to believe before. Um, I can't remember who I was having a conversation with this week, but most of the time, you and I don't have to really believe in God in any sort of conscious way. I, I get up, I, I brush my teeth, I make a cup of coffee, and I'm not at all times going, I wonder who holds things all together in the universe. Um, it's just not, it's just not a, you know, it's not a, a constant thought. It doesn't have to be in most moments. But there are some moments in like, you like, okay, what's real here? What will hold me here? And um, like, as I said earlier, suffering is like no other moment in which you are forced to face what you most believe. And in those moments, um, you can go in different directions. One of which would say, I, I cannot Imagine any good reason why God would allow this to happen, and therefore he is either incompetent or non-existent. You can go in that direction. You can, you can think those thoughts, and you can walk in that way, and countless people have. But that's not the only option on offer. Another option is to say, I don't understand it. I don't like it. And like Jesus, I'm not only weeping about it, but I'm grinding my teeth and saying, you're right. This is not how it's supposed to be but I will retain my trust in you and therefore be softened and submissive to you even though I don't get it and I don't like it. In which case, I encourage everybody to run to the Psalms and say, boy, are you in good company because they do an excellent job of being very honest with their God, especially saying, where are you? 
What have you done? How long is this going to go on? But I'll trust in you. So yes, there's choice involved in God's working in us in order to make us more like himself under the influence of his spirit by faith in his son. You may have felt like your story of sharing about losing your daughter hit this, but I thought there might be more that you would like to share. Um, The question is, how has your faith prepared you personally for suffering? Uh, I will tell you, when Bella died, I ran to John 11. Um, And as you've heard me say, if you've been around here, if I've preached a funeral that you've been a part of, I've, I've pulled from that text a lot because I drew a lot of uh, solace from that to know that the only one that was as sad and as angry about the death of my daughter as me was Jesus. And so I ran to that story. Was I, so I, I guess, how was I prepared? I knew that story. No one's ever prepared for the kinds of suffering they encounter. There's, there, I, and, and I, um, not to say that get ready, it's, you know, it's coming, and you'll just be knocked on your backside. You will. But I don't think there's any way that you can kind of, like with the recoil of a shotgun, there's no way to kind of pull it in tighter so that when the recoil doesn't happen, it does happen, it doesn't leave much of a bruise. You're going to be bruised regardless. I just, uh, I do think uh, if, if, you're, if you want to, if you want to talk about preparation, like it's kind of like premarital counseling, I, like I told so I had a pastor friend tell me premarital counseling is like taking a, a, a swimming course by correspondence. <laughs> you put your toe in the water. Oh, this is great. I'm learning to swim. Um, I think that's, that's about as best as you get in terms of preparing yourself for suffering. I, I'll give you one way to go to the house of mourning. Go to somebody's funeral, even if it's somebody you don't even know. Consider the story of Jesus. He suffered. Read the Psalms. They suffered. And they believed in God. Um, you prepare yourself by just realizing it happens. And, and sometimes people are so shocked and astonished that it does happen, they kind of get angry going, I can't believe this is happening to me. And Jesus would kind of look back and say, you know, I, I can believe it. So um, is that preparation? I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, it, it, it tips you off to the, to the reality that it will happen. And I think as, you, as we all become to be more acquainted with the ways in which it does and, and our participation with those who are in suffering when weeping with those who weep, uh, I guess those are forms of preparation. But when it does, when it does come your turn, uh, expect to be winded and to be wondering and maybe to be doubting and maybe to be angry. And that's okay. I think we have time for one more. Um, what is the role of prayer when we are suffering? In suffering, there's so much confusion and disorientation and emotion, obviously, and deliberation. And, and sometimes you get into a, an obsessive loop about blame and responsibility and all those things. And um, 
all that stuff will leave you in a mess because you don't have a category for it. You don't see any point to it. Um, you just want it to go away. And like I said, at this um, memorial service on Monday, every expression, every experience of grief has a little fear mixed with it. Because you fear, like, what now? And then you fear, like, what happens when it's my turn? And then you fear, like, what if this is it? Like, what if there is no hope? So in every experience of grief, there's a little bit or a lot of bit of fear. Well, the question is, what do you do with any or all of that? We weep. Um, we walk. We take an Ambien because we can't sleep. Okay, don't take an Ambien. But we got to go somewhere with that stuff. And again, from a Christian point of view, there are ample experiences and examples of people in the midst of experiences just like that who took their anguish to God with words. And uh, it is both proper and necessary, I think, to go there, to remain sort of bottled up inside and stoic and still as if you're not supposed to show it or if you're just going to be already jumping to the conclusion that God is either a failure or a fraud, um, you know, you'll just, you'll just keep it up and you'll just be bitter and hard or, or you'll just find another way to cope. The role of prayer in suffering, I think, is um, to be absolutely vulnerable and transparent before him and to know that he can take it. He's heard plenty. Go read Psalm 88 sometime. It's, it's the only psalm in the entire Psalter that does not end on a note of hope. And if you want to hear bleak words, there they are. But God's okay with that. He can take it. Better you give it that way uh, than to sort of walk around and pretend like it doesn't hurt and that it's not reaching some foundational recess of your, of your worldview. I mean, it, it, everything, every experience of suffering messes with what you thought was true and stable and trustworthy. And um, I think in moments like that, you've got to cry out. And uh, God's okay with you crying out. I think it's, 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 the, the way, it's one means by which you mourn and not make sense of things, but adjust into the new normal and somehow invite him to commend himself to you as still good, even if, uh, to borrow the words of Paul, his ways are inscrutable, indecipherable. I think prayer helps in some of those ways and others. Do you want to do one more? This is really hard. There are a lot of really good questions and so many that we could be here for another few hours. I do want you to know that they are not getting lost on this phone here. I'm capturing them, sharing them with other pastors, and we're talking about other ways that we can have these conversations, and they might lead us to certain classes or different things. So um, they are not just lost in cyberspace if they aren't answered. But there are so many that are coming in, we just don't have time for them all. Do you want to do one more? Okay, one more. Okay. Then we'll call it a night. Um, I'm struggling with a loved one's desire to quit life, and after a long time of trying to love and console, I have lost sight of how suicide is any worse than living in such deathly depression. Could you read it again? Mm -hmm. I think. 
thought I could. <laughs> There's so many on here, and it Let me see if I can remember I what you said. I have the gist. I think after I've read it a couple times, there they have a friend that's struggling with depression, that sounds like maybe close to suicide, and so the question is. Um, Can someone help me if they heard it or who asked it? The, the, yeah, better than the suffering that they're experiencing. Uh, yeah. Would the suicide, would, 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 would uh, okay, so one has been uh, sought to be of great care and comfort and counsel to someone who has contemplated suicide for a long time, and given the degree of suffering that they're facing, the question they're wondering is, would it not be preferable would, would suicide not be preferable than have, continuing I, in the suffering? I found it. Okay, I have lost sight of how suicide is any worse mm. than living in such deathly depression. Mm. Depression is an extreme form of subjectivity. And that means uh, one sees in a certain way that is in many ways devoid of the full picture of all things. And therefore they, they see so narrowly. And, and suffering does that, right? When, when we're in the midst of it, that's all we can think about. That's all we feel. It's all we want to be rid of. And so that's all we, that's our whole world and therefore, to speak of anything outside of that that might in some ways push back against um, uh, the, re the reality that they're facing, they just sort of say, I, I can't see that. I, I can only see this. And, and so subjectivity is such a the, the profound challenge to kind of help someone see that their suffering has a wider context to it. And um, not to trivialize it, but there is a, there's a scene in a film that I commend to all of you with certain reservations. It's not exactly a kid-friendly film. It's called Calvary, and it's about a Catholic priest um, in Ireland whose daughter attempted suicide and said uh, unto her father, that he was not a priest when they got married and had a child, and then he became a priest, just so you're wondering. And she says, it's my life. I can do with it as I please. And he says, True, false. Meaning, there is a sense in which we have a certain autonomy over ourselves. We, we make our choices. We, we experience things as, we, as they come to us, and, and we're responsible and accountable for those things. True, it is ours. In another sense, though, it's not. It's not just your life. And therefore, though your suffering is real, and to you... Um, uh, not just insurmountable, but um, it's unrealistic to to stay there. Like that guy on the rail in London, he's experiencing a profound moment of subjectivity that then everybody rushes to his aid to say, you're not seen at all. You're not only not seen at all, the parts that you can see, that you might see, I want to help you see. I just ask that you trust that that what I see is there and that you kind of doubt your own doubts and allow me to see for you. 
Now, given the particularities of the story of this question, I don't want to sort of sound like it's just a simple formula, just see the big picture. But I, I do think uh, in the midst of great despair and despondency, to the extent I was able, I would try to help them to see that there is a broader picture that allows them to see that their suffering, no matter how unremitting it is, is not the totality of who they are and therefore does not justify the kind of profound act of sacrifice, of, 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 of giving over what is, what is not exclusively theirs. So I have great sympathy for that, and I wouldn't ever mean to say to someone, oh, get over it, you don't see the big picture. But I would do my best to try to provide for them a larger context in which to think of their individual and profound suffering.